Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Week 32 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcasts. I'm Chris Hahn. You knew that. Another great week behind us and another important week ahead of us. And Trump just keeps getting beat in the South. Got Jill Weinbanks here today. It's going to be a great show. Let's start it. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. You and I as citizens have the obligation to shape the debates of our time, not only with the votes we cast, but with the voices we lift. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Clear leadership. And we are as a people. Not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. Opposed to secret society. But ours was a nation of the battle. Not the bullet. And a secret procedure. As a people, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizens live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the commonwealth. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, young, old, gay, straight, men, women, folks with disabilities, all pledging allegiance under the same proud flag to this big, bold country that we love. That's what I see. That's the America I know. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. All right. So where to begin? I mean, do I start with Trump getting thumped in Louisiana or do I start with the impeachment hearings? I I think since I have Jill Weinbanks, the great Jill Weinbanks joining me in a few minutes here on the podcast, I'm going to start with impeachment, but um, I'm going to talk about Louisiana too. It's, uh, It's important to note when the president begs his supporters not to let everybody Look at him as a loser, which he is. It's great to point out that he's a loser when he loses. So um, let's start with the impeachment hearings. Um, Last week, we had uh, three important witnesses, Yovanovitch, Taylor, and Kent, testify before the House. Republicans uh, tried their best to be clowns. They had a hard time on Friday because the president decided to attack Ivanovich while she was testifying, which I don't think was a good move on the president's part to, um, you know, to, to tamper with a witness, to intimidate a witness while they're testifying. I mean, that in and of itself uh, could be grounds for impeachment. Of course, Republicans are like, oh, what difference does it make? He's not a bully. Oh, we're bullying. You're bullying him. I, how many people tweeted at me that I'm bullying the president? I, uh, let, me, let me explain something to you. He's the most powerful man in the world. I am a guy who has a radio show, a podcast, and sometimes goes on TV. Okay? Not not, not the same. I don't have the same power as he does. His words matter most. I keep saying that over and over again, and I want conservatives to understand that the president's words matter most, and they should do their best 
to get him in line and to get him to start considering his words carefully. And I'm sorry, America, that's what this impeachment's about. This impeachment's about a man who who doesn't, who, I, I think he understands the consequences of his words. I'm not going to give him a pass on that. I think a lot of people have. I think a lot of people on the right have. I am not giving a pass on his words and understanding what his words mean. But this impeachment's about a man who has used his words to intimidate. He does it for, he does it domestically, and he did it to a foreign power, Ukraine. And if you listen to Yovanovitch, and if you listen to Kent, and you listen to Taylor, I feel they build the foundation for impeachment. Now, what is uh, impeachment going to look like? I don't know. Uh, you never know what a house or a building is going to look like just by looking at its foundation. But the foundation has been laid, and it has been laid strongly. It has been put down by career uh, officials who are not partisan. And if you look at Taylor, particularly, you would think he's a Republican. I mean, West Point grad, fifth in his class at West Point, by the way, fifth in his class at West Point, was asked by Pompeo directly to come back into government service. I bet you they knew each other at West Point. They're about the same age. I don't know. I got to look that up. Um, Pompeo was famously first in his class at West Point. Maybe Pompeo is about 10 years younger. I don't know. But uh, they probably knew of each other through West Point alumni gatherings, etc. Pompeo asked Taylor to come back into government service. And Taylor was dismayed by uh, what he was seeing. And, you know, the bombshell testimony on Friday was the recollection that an aide to Taylor went to dinner with uh, Ambassador Sondland, who was going to testify on Wednesday. And that ambassador took a phone call at a restaurant in the Ukraine, former Soviet Republic, place that's basically occupied by the Russians, took a phone call from the president of the United States. And the president spoke so loudly on this phone call that the aide and another aide heard the conversation. Now, I could see I could see how this went down, right? Sondland's like, oh, I'm going to get the president on the phone. I've got the president calling me. He's trying to impress these aides. I mean, Sondland looks like the kind of guy who feels like he needs to impress people, that his money hasn't done enough to impress people in his lifetime. So he's looking for other ways to impress people. So access to the president of the United States might be um, might be a way to impress these two young aides that were there with him. He's trying to show off, I think. We're heard, we've heard from one of them, and I think we're going to hear from the other one as well. But he gets off the phone call, Sondland, and he says to the aide, no, the president only cares about the big stuff. And I'm putting air quotes up. You can't see it on the podcast, but I'm putting air quotes up. He cares about the big stuff, the investigation into the Bidens. That's what he thought the big stuff was. Now, the Republican reaction was, nothing to see here. Oh, it's so boring. Eight hours of testimony from a guy in a bow tie. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think it was boring. I think it was actually right on the money. I know it was a long time. Six hours is a lot to sit through. I get it. Uh, And then Maria Ivanovich on Friday, um, I thought her testimony was compelling. I mean, she felt threatened by the president of the United States and primarily because she was out there trying to help Ukraine uh, fight corruption. And there was a new administration that was ready to do that. And what does this president do? Let's corrupt them a little bit. Let's send Rudy Giuliani, Igor, and Lev over there to try to corrupt it up a little bit for our benefit. And by ours, I don't mean the United States of America. I mean by the, for the president's own 
benefit. And Rudy Giuliani's fingerprints are all over this. He had some deals with clients, oil producing clients. You know, this whole thing about Burisma is as much about the Bidens. I think we're going to find this out. That this Burisma thing is as much about the Bidens as it is about the uh, Giuliani's clients who are competing with Burisma. I think that's where this is going to end up if we ever get the real truth about what happened there. And I think we're going to. I think it's. I think every day it becomes more and more clear. And, and the president of the United States can't help himself. The president of the United States tweets during these hearings. He's tweeted over 100 times during the hearings. I, I mean, nonsense. Nancy Pelosi over the weekend was on, uh, on uh, Face the Nation on CBS. And she invited the president to come testify. And on Monday morning, the president was on Fox and Friends, said he'd very much like to come testify. Really? <laughs> America. I would love it. I would love it if the president came and testified. He won't. He'll do a written thing. You watch. He'll do a written thing where his lawyers can write the answers. So he's uh, in less jeopardy. But uh, I would love it. Could you see the president of the United States sitting there? You got to hear me. I am going to tell you what happened. It was a perfect call. I mean, I know it's not a great Trump. <laughs> I'm trying. I, 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 I am interested to see. And, and just watching these guys, though, bend themselves. I was on with uh, Dan Bongino on uh, Laura Ingram. And the two of them were complaining how boring the hearings were. They were boring hearings. Nothing to see here. I'm sorry. Um, the Clinton impeachment hearings lasted weeks. The Nixon impeachment hearings lasted a year. They couldn't all be entertainment. I'm sorry, Dan Bongino, that you know this wasn't an episode of uh, WWE Raw. I am sorry that it's not like professional wrestling, that there was a SmackDown going on, like that that uh, uh, Bill Taylor didn't get up and pick Devin Nunez up over his head and throw him to the ground, even though I'm sure he could physically. I'm sorry, right wing, that this wasn't as exciting as my podcast is. I get it. I'm entertaining. That's why I'm here. But it was factual and it was relevant to hear these men and this woman who have dedicated their lives in a nonpartisan way to the United States of America, tell their stories about what they saw going on and how alarmed they were by it and how it impacted Ukraine and negatively impacted the United States foreign policy. I think it was very, very much needed. And I think it was very compelling and very exciting. And to hear these guys talk like it was just boring. Oh, it's boring. Don't watch it. There's no sex. Well, we don't know that there's no sex. We haven't gotten there yet. I mean, was Sondland trying to impress these young aides? Why? Let's find out. We're going to find out on Wednesday when this guy testifies. I have a feeling I'm making a prediction here, and some of you are probably listening to this after the fact, but I have a feeling that Sondland's going to take the fifth a few times. That's, just my, that's what my gut's telling me. We're going to have the first Fifth Amendment raised in the Trump administration era in a congressional hearing, and uh, let's see how the Trump, let's see how the Trumpster who said, if they take the fifth, they're guilty. Let's see how he handles that. I think if you refuse to let people testify, you're guilty. 
And I think the president knows that. He should let Mick Mulvaney and Bolton and everybody else he's blocking with the State Department release the documents. If you really want transparency, Mr. President, you need to release all the documents and allow anybody the Congress wants to come testify. If you've got a real privilege complaint, you need to raise the privilege complaint. Ignoring subpoenas, that's just un-American. It is un-American. And the members of Congress that are sitting there and allowing the president of the United States to ignore subpoenas basically are allowing the president's ambition to counteract their ambition in a negative way, in a way that doesn't serve their constituents, in a way that doesn't serve the Constitution, that doesn't allow for the proper checks and balances. You people are despicable and you should resign your office. If you're in Congress, why are you there if you're not going to protect the authority of the Congress to put an effective check on an executive branch, which is out of control. And quite frankly, it's been growing out of control for a very long time. It is not just this president, but this president having that power unchecked is absolutely terrifying. And we should all be concerned about it. Like I said, I got Jill Weinbanks. Uh, I'll be interviewing her in a few minutes. I got to talk about Louisiana, though, before I get to the Jill Weinbanks uh, interview. Or you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the interview right now with Jill Weinbanks. And then when I come back, I'll talk about Louisiana. I'll talk about Mayor Pete ahead in Iowa. uh, And uh, we'll preview the debate that's coming up at the end of the week. So stay where you are. I'll be right back. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. I'm Royal Oaks. Next time on Too Many Lawyers, COVID continues to reshape the law. Supreme Court arguments will be held by teleconference. The justices won't even know if the lawyers are wearing pants, which is fair given the eternal mystery of what's under those black robes. Los Angeles County is springing 25% of its inmates. The sheriff suggests folks get ready for what might be a spike in crime. Check it all out on the next episode of Too Many Lawyers. Jill Weinbanks is a former special prosecutor during the Watergate impeachment process. And you see her on MSNBC. I had the privilege of meeting her in person about three weeks ago in Tennessee. Jill, how you doing? I'm good. And how are you? I'm doing great. I hope you're staying warm there in chilly Chicago. I am just warming up from coming in from a just unbelievably cold. Unbelievable. It, it warmed up here in New York today. It was cold for the last two days, and it was uh, actually beautiful today. Um, oh, lucky you. I'm a runner, so 40 degrees is beautiful for me. So I, <laughs> it's like a nice thing. So, Jill, I got to get right to it because I've got like 20 minutes with you, and and um, you know, I got to get your first impressions of what we saw saw on Wednesday. What we saw was the start of the unraveling of a very damaging set of facts. And I think we need to focus on the facts that were revealed. Um, We can also talk about the process. The process was much better than I had anticipated it might be. Um, I think that Adam Schiff conducted the hearing brilliantly. He was very calm and kept control and didn't get rattled by the diversionary tactics. Um, And I hope that people... Uh, who watch Fox News will see the gavel-to-gavel coverage the way I saw it, yep. because that gives you a total perspective on what the facts are 
and what the theories are. And what you would see is that the Democrats were laying out first sort of an understanding of why Ukraine matters to America, why cutting them off from aid hurt our national security, and why it was dangerous for them who are actively fighting a war against one of our enemies, Russia. Yep. And, 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 and we that could, was important. And we couldn't have had two better, I think, real, solid citizens who have been serving this country for their entire lives, uh, you know, making the case that this was out of the ordinary. And serving their country under Democrats and Republicans. These are not yep. partisans. These are people who have served as government officials, and they also are not part of the deep state. Right. Taylor was appointed by Donald Trump at the specific request of the Secretary of State, Pompeo, and has served admirably and was distressed by what he witnessed. And he witnessed something, um, you know, personally. So this nonsense that the Republicans are saying is it's all hearsay. Um, And to the extent, by the way, that some of the best witnesses are not being called, it's not because the Democrats don't want them. Right. It's because the Republicans don't want them. Right. The, The president has barred them from testifying, and they have followed his improper orders. I would say they were improper orders. Yep. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. I, I've never seen people exert privilege without privilege really being raised. Like, I'm still, I haven't seen, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Jill, but has the White House actually raised privilege when it comes to these people? I don't think they have. They've just said you can't cooperate. Well, they haven't raised it in a legally appropriate way. They have issued a letter saying, Let's stonewall this completely. Do not cooperate. Do not testify. Right. And that is not the same thing as saying I officially invoke some recognizable privilege that we could actually debate in a court. I mean, if they invoked privilege, then you could go to court and say the privilege doesn't apply because, and you'd have reasons that would be applicable. But if you don't actually claim it, then there's no way to deal with it except to do, I think, what the um, committee is doing, which is to say, we will draw an adverse inference. If you're not letting people testify, we have to assume, as any person would in their daily life, this is how you would make the assumption. You go, well, if you're not coming forward with it, it must be because it doesn't help your case. It must hurt your case. That's a perfectly logical way that people in their daily lives uh, respond. Yeah, I mean, so that's in, what I'm assuming. Innocent people don't block people from uh, talking about the conversations they had. I mean, that's exactly. just the way it is. And these are, you know, most of these Republicans were all for stop and frisk. Well, if you're innocent, what do you care about? What do you right. care about us finding out what's going on if you're innocent? Right. You know, um, so now they, they're all of a sudden they've, they've found religion on stop and frisk. They don't want anything to do with stop and frisk anymore, I guess. Well, it's, it's on every issue you can find where they supported it until it was used against them. Right, right, and, right. Um, and now we're seeing, by the way, uh, as we saw yesterday, we saw a very solid foundation of two witnesses who corroborated each other. And we learned that there's a third witness to a second phone call, not the one that Donald Trump wants to release, which has nothing to do with anything, but one that has to everything to do with whether or not he was pressuring Ukraine for something of value to him. 
uh, in which makes it clear it was. And now we have actually identified a second witness to that second phone call. So in addition to Sondland, who now must feel like, well, I'm really honored. I'm going to actually have to tell the truth because it's not just my word against uh, David Holmes. It's my word against him and Gennady. Who yeah. also heard the call. Who, so um, so I am like dumbfounded by this guy, Sondland, that he'd be in a restaurant in Ukraine, probably <laughs> trying to impress these two aides, right? Hey, I'm going to get the president on the phone. I mean, I could see this guy doing this, right? He's a, a, a multimillionaire hotelier uh, sitting in Ukraine trying to impress a couple civil servants and saying, I'm going to get the president on the phone right now. <laughs> I think you are right. I yeah. mean, there's no explanation for anyone being so foolish. Yeah. As to make a phone call in a public place. In the Ukraine, a former Ukraine, Soviet republic. Anywhere, right. anywhere, but particularly in, a, in, in Ukraine uh, or, or, or Russia or North Korea, any of those places, you wouldn't make a phone call that you didn't expect the government was listening to. Right. And, um, you know, maybe Ukraine under Zelensky, not maybe, it seems clear that he's the real deal and that he's actually trying to get the country to be much more an active part of Europe and yep. much more a Western country yep. and to be, you know, to really fight corruption in ways that clearly weren't being done before. Um, so I, I think you're probably right. He was showing off or he just wasn't thinking. I mean, it just, I can't imagine. Uh, when I've been on business in China, I'm very careful what I put on my computer and when I connect to the internet, I assume that my whole computer can be taken. Yeah. And so you don't do that. And calling the president and many people who have had very close relationships with the president, not this president, but with any president, have said, you don't just pick up the phone and call the president. No. It just doesn't happen. And so, I mean, I'm very interested to hear more about um, everything that was heard, both Sondland, why did he call and what exactly did he say? And, you know, more specifically, what did Donald Trump say? And we now have two witnesses. Yep. So Sondland can't lie. Yeah. And I have to be more careful. Yeah. I, I That was the big revelation, I think, um, yesterday was the Sondland phone call to the president in the Ukraine overheard by the staffer, now two staffers. But what would you say, you know, were the other, you know, highlights for you uh, yesterday? Um, I, I think one has to be on process was the new rules which give the uh chairman schiff and then the minority um nunez 45 minutes that they can use or that they can dole out and can have staff use 45 minutes is a good amount of time to make a compelling narrative yeah the five minute rule that preceded it was nonsense yeah no one not even Clarence Darrow, not the most skilled litigator, can in five minutes ask a question, get an answer from particularly a recalcitrant witness, yep. which these two were not. No, they were, they were, they were totally were... people who wanted to tell the truth and yep. wanted to say whatever they knew that they They were there under subpoena, but they were friendly subpoenas for sure. But, yes. I mean, these were people who wanted the story to come out because they felt that American democracy was being threatened by what had happened. And so, I, I mean, they weren't recalcitrant, but even with a cooperating witness, you have to ask a question, get an answer, do a follow-up, do further exploration, and five minutes isn't very much, and then you turn it over to someone 
on the opposite side who's going to try to make a point completely different, and then to another Congress member, even on your side, who, unless you've agreed before to consolidate your questions, is going to take a different path, and you're never going to get to the end of question number one before you're on question number three. Oh, it was my big problem with the uh, Kavanaugh hearings and some of the other hearings that we've had, where it's just been this, you know, you know, a minute of an opening statement and then, you know, one question and then you're on to the other side. It's exactly it, it, it was nonsense. So I agree with you. I think the process worked a lot better. I don't think the Republicans took advantage of the process at all. I think that that council was, I guess, auditioning for a federal judgeship for Trump or something. I don't know what Maybe. was going on. I mean, I don't think he did as badly as the Democrat, uh, as the Republicans. Actually, the Republicans are the ones criticizing him the most. Right. And that's because he didn't do a full out. Lindsey Graham or McConnell or something else of like, yeah, this is just absolutely perfect. The president did nothing wrong. And what are you talking about? He he wasn't as strong as the president would have liked. So that's why the Democrats, uh, I'm sorry, the Republicans are criticizing him. He wasn't great, but I don't think he was terrible. And I think he made some valid points. I think that Dan Goldman did a much better job, and I think that Schiff did a very good job. Yes. Opening statement and his closing. And in his closing, um, I want to point to one thing that hasn't gotten as much attention, which is he pointed out that he sort of rebutted the Republican argument of no harm, no foul. Uh, He might have asked, but they didn't do it, and he released the money. Right, right. Well, there's an intervening few things that weren't mentioned, <laughs> right. like, for example, the whistleblower complaint was released, yep. and the Congress knew that the money was being withheld, and the Congress started after it, and so Donald Trump and his minions knew that he was caught, and so rather than prolong it and make it look like what it was, which was deliberately withheld for the purpose of getting something, yep. they released the money. It's not that they released it just because they suddenly decided that Zelensky was the real deal. They did it because they didn't want to get in any further trouble for what they had done. So, you know, being that you're one of the, you know, great attorneys in this country, I'll ask you this question. You know, I'm an attorney, too, but and I know the answer. Uh, Attempted bribery is still a crime, right? Any attempt is a crime. Right. I mean, just because you're a clumsy, incompetent person and don't accomplish it, it's still a crime. Yep. If I and the other thing they're arguing is, well, you know, he had a right to do an investigation that he thought affected the election. Okay, and, and that he had a right before releasing money to find out about general corruption in Ukraine. So let's point out that, number one, he didn't ask about any of those things. He right. only asked about two things that were of political value to him and him alone, yep, yep. him personally. Yep. And so that that sort of falls apart just on the fact. Yep. But even if he had done something to ask for something that might have been legitimate. And there isn't that. I just want it clear. There is not that fact. But if there had been, it's sort of like if you went into a bank and said, here's my check. I want to withdraw $100 from my account. And you're handed $100. That's a perfectly legitimate thing. Right. And then you pull out your gun and say, and now I'll take every other piece of money that you have in your drawer. That doesn't mean you're not robbing the bank because you did one legitimate thing. I, I... I couldn't agree with you more. I actually had an argument with Britt Hume um, where I said to him, you know, in extortion, the crime is actually in the attempt. Yes. 
that is the crime. Yes. When yes. you make the request that you say, if you don't give me this, I will not give you that. That's the crime. Not actually, whether or not you eventually give them the money without what you were going to get. Exactly. You, and this argument that they didn't know that the money was being withheld, number one, I think is factually flawed. I do not believe they didn't know. They knew the money had been approved. They knew they didn't have it. And so I think that by the time of this meeting, the, the July 25th meeting, that they knew. Yep. I think they knew. Uh, but but there are just so many things. In For example, asking for something of value is against the federal campaign laws. Yep. You cannot ask for something from a foreign entity, let alone a foreign government. Yep. So if you do ask for it, it's the solicitation that yeah. is the crime itself. So that's not even an attempt. It's just asking, explaining that you'd be ready to take it. Now, that's a crime. Now, you were on the prosecution team that went after Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. How does this compare? Well, let me just wait, stop you because yep. we went after the facts. Right. Facts ended up proving that Richard Nixon had committed crimes and that so had many of his uh, colleagues and employees. But we, we didn't go after uh, Richard Nixon. I, we I, stand, the truth. I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. Um, so how does this compare to Nixon? Um, well, there are a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities, both in terms of their personalities, their um, belief they're above the law. But there are some differences. Obviously, no foreign power was involved in the crimes committed by Richard Nixon. Right. The crimes that were committed were really to stop one criminal investigation of himself and of his campaign committee and his White House uh, employees. This one goes way beyond that in terms of interfering in oversight. He's preventing people to come and testify about his immigration policies. For yeah. And so it goes way beyond to the point that it threatens the very foundations of our government, which is a tripartite, equal, three co-equal branches yeah. with checks and balances. I don't, understand how, checks and I don't balances. understand how Republicans aren't standing up for their own authority in Congress. It, I, I don't know what it is that Donald Trump has. Richard Nixon had as much money to spend as Donald Trump does, not in terms of campaign money. And Donald Trump has raised a lot of money. But in the days of Watergate, there were no restrictions on campaign donations. And they could be in cash. You didn't have to account for where they came from. Or where they went. There there were safes of cash, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Rosemary Woods, Nixon's secretary, in her apartment at the Watergate complex, had $100,000 in a safe. Wow. And and back then, $100,000 was a lot more valuable than yep. it is today. Um, but there were safes overflowing with money. So I don't, you know, yes, Donald Trump is threatening to primary anybody who doesn't stand up for him. Yep. And he's been effective. He's He's had some success, but he's also lost a lot of people that he supported. So maybe it's time for Republicans to start weighing whether he is a drag on them and whether he's going to end up hurting them, whether Republican voters are going to say, you know, I forgave him for having three wives. I forgave him for having uh, multiple affairs and paying hush money. I forgave him for name 500 other things. I forgave him for 14,000 lies (laughs) in the time he's been president. But now he withdrew troops in Syria and people died because of it. 
and he left a very significant ally of ours alone and now having suffered genocide and now he's doing this and who's all of this benefiting it's all benefiting it's all for him russia yeah all and russia. russia and i and i asked the question even with the syria stuff i go why would he make such a flip decision like that I, it, it's one of these things that you have to think there must have been something in it for donald trump otherwise why why do that I, he had to know well, the outrage that would be coming from even his own party yeah i i mean maybe he doesn't because he's not attuned to anyone but himself mm. so it may be that he really had no concept and and doesn't you know he doesn't play chess so yeah he doesn't get he, to see he thinks he's playing chess this, then this is what they will do in response and then i'll have to do this and then where will i be yeah he sees his double trump tower in turkey and goes okay mr erdogan a i admire you because you're a dictator and um, I like authoritarian figures, and B, I have some economic interest in this, so I'm going to give you what you want. And that was the end of it. So I have about a minute left with you. This mm-hmm. goes too quick. You're too good at this. Um, what do you expect from the coming weeks, uh, from the testimonies we're about to hear it, and, and from the actions in Congress? Well, I think we're going to expect to hear the case being built brick by brick, that, um, or like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, where we now had two witnesses who totally corroborated each other, who laid a foundation for understanding why any of this matters to us as Americans, why this is a threat to national security, which is, I think, one of the reasons that you would impeach a president is because he's endangered you. And I think that all of the other witnesses are going to fit in to that same jigsaw, and you're going to see the pieces starting to come together to form a real picture that people will be able to understand. And that's really important, is that they not get carried away. And that's one of the reasons you can't let the Republicans say, let's divert attention and let's call in people who have nothing to do with the facts that are at issue. The question is, what did the president do? Did he ask for help with his campaign from a foreign power. And yep. did he hold up the money? Yeah. Did he commit extortion? This is not a camp. This is not a case of is Joe Biden's son uh, unqualified? It That's not a crime nothing, anyway. No. It's a bad look, but it's not a crime. Jill, I love you. America thank loves you. you. Keep up the good work. Jill Weinbanks, thank you so much for joining me. All right, that's Jill. Stick around. I got a lot more to talk about. I'll be right back. All right, I'm back. I love talking to Jill Weinbanks. I could talk to her every day. Um, she's awesome. She knows what she's talking about. She's been there. She's lived it. She sees what's going on firsthand. Um, great stuff. She's got a book coming out in February called Watergate Girl. I am going to get it. She's going to be back on. Uh, by then, my radio show is going to be in a lot of markets. We've got a couple coming up. I can't make the announcement yet, but you're going to know soon enough. Uh, it all is kicking off in just a couple weeks, and I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be talking about it here. By the way, uh, tell a friend about this podcast. We continue to grow. Uh, share it on uh, on social media. Write a review, uh, especially if you're on Apple. I got a lot of trolls who troll me there, and you guys got my rating back up, so I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, if, you, um, if you like it, leave a good review. Uh, and if you like it, tell a friend, tweet about it. 
send me an email if you want to get involved. You want to talk about uh, what's going on in the world with me. If you want me to answer questions, uh, shoot me an email. I'll either respond to an email or maybe I'll talk about it here on the show. I, I really do appreciate the support I've been getting. I've been getting a lot of emails. You go to ChristopherHahn.com. That's where you find my email address. And I'm at Christopher Hahn on Twitter uh, as well. So, all right, let's talk a little bit about Louisiana. Uh, you know, over the weekend, uh, John Bella Edwards got reelected governor, the Democratic governor of Louisiana. Donald Trump had visited Louisiana uh, the day before, and he begged his uh, Trump rally, you know, don't let them, you know, beat me up and say that this was the worst thing that ever happened to Donald Trump. Well, I got to be honest with you, Mr. President. Had you not mentioned it, I probably wouldn't have given you any of the blame for this election or the one in Kentucky. But you made it about you. And since you made it about you, it is partially about you. In fact, uh, John Bell Edwards, those, those polls have been, been tight. Uh, some had Edwards down. Some have had him up. Um, but he won. You called the most conservative Democrat in America a radical socialist, which is just funny. Considering your like, five-year plan for farmers where you're basically subsidizing these farmers and saying tariffs are paying for the subsidies... Uh, you, you're, you are a radical socialist and, 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 and maybe not even socialist. I, I think that's not even what you are. I mean, the five-year plans, those are communist, right? We all support social security. There is no pure system of, of economics in this country, but you know, Stalin did have a five-year plan that encouraged farmers not to sell their crops to certain places. And they, the government paid them for those crops, which is exactly what you're doing right now because of your trade war, your ill-advised trade war. So good luck in Iowa. Um, you know, when you're losing Louisiana and Kentucky, I think states like Iowa, Georgia, Texas, Florida are all in play. And I think the Democrats shouldn't take it lightly that there is a trend in this country away from Donald Trump. And I think these rallies aren't helping him. I tweeted about this over the weekend. I, you know, if you're not at a rally or if you're not a guy who, or a woman, but mostly a guy who would go to a Trump rally, um, you look at those rallies and quite frankly, you are disturbed by what you see. And, and I'm not saying, you know, don't take this the wrong way. I am not saying it's about the crowd. It's about the president. I get it. The crowd gets worked up into a fervor and they start chanting. You know, that happens at football games. And I'm not disturbed by the NFL. It is the president's actions at this rally, at these rallies, the way he behaves, the beclowning of himself at these rallies, which has got to be disturbing to you if you believe in a stable government in this country, particularly one with a strong executive like we have here. And if you've got a president of the United States who insists on going to these comfort stations, basically, you know, he goes out and he tries to comfort himself by going to these rallies that are not helping the people who he's going there to support. I mean, this did not help the Republican candidate in Louisiana. If anything, it hurt him. The president hurt this guy by showing up. It hurt the guy in Kentucky. I mean, the guy in Kentucky, you know, wrapped himself in Donald Trump. So that race, you know, to say it wasn't about Donald Trump is ridiculous. The last 10 days of the advertising in that election, the most important time in a campaign of those last two weeks. And it was all about Trump. It was all about impeachment. And Trump made it all about impeachment in Louisiana. So now we have two Southern states that voted for impeachment, just for the record, in case anybody's keeping score, Kentucky and Louisiana voted for uh, impeachment. Trump's one for three 
in the South in three gubernatorial races this year. And they also lost the legislature in, in Virginia. So, you know, the Republican Party is not doing real well under Donald Trump. And I don't understand why they keep twisting themselves in pretzels to try to defend him against indefensible behavior. I don't get it. They keep doing it. Even good people do it. People who I like and trust, and not, I wouldn't say trust, but people who I like, who I used to respect their opinion, and I still respect some of their opinions, but the, when they go out there and they try to fight you know, Donald Trump's battles for him, I'm, I, I ask myself the question, why are these people who used to be principled conservatives behaving in such an unprincipled way? Just ignoring things. And, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I know I say this all the time, and I know a lot of progressives say this all the time, but if this was President Hillary Clinton, these guys would be lining up with pitchforks and torches in hands and waiting for her to resign outside the White House right now. This would be like we had like a situation like they had in Bolivia last week. This would be like a situation like they had in Puerto Rico with the government. The Republican Party would be protesting in the street outside of the White House if Hillary Clinton behaved this way. If Barack Obama behaved this way, it would be even worse. So to hear these principled conservatives, people who used to be principled conservatives, behaving like fools for this president, court gestures for this president, like Lindsey Graham, even like Mike Pompeo, to see these men, and mostly men, behaving like this, it's disturbing. And it's disturbing to see the president going to rallies and revving people up and spitting out lies and half-truths, mostly lies though, let's face it, he's lying every minute. And, and a crowd going, well, it's absolutely, completely disturbing. And it's not helping him because it's disturbing more people than it's turning on, even in the deep red South. He won Louisiana by 20 points, and he did not help the Republican who was running in that race. Didn't help him at all. May have even hurt him. God bless America. God bless you, Louisiana. God bless you, Kentucky. We got to move on from this guy. How are the Democrats going to move on from this guy? Well, I mean, Deval Patrick got into the race this week. We talked about Bloomberg getting into the race last week. I'm one of those guys who says, go ahead, get in if you think you can win. I, I think the, the race starts too early anyway. I think it's ridiculous that we had a, a, a debate, you know, a year ago almost on these, on these candidates. I'm not into that. I think that that's something that needs to change. We've got to shorten up the calendar and we have to have a, con- a condensed because people just lose interest completely. They don't pay attention at all. But if you look at the polls uh, that came out, over the weekend, uh, and 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 they're basically confirming the rise of Pete Buttigieg, particularly in Iowa. And you know, Pete Buttigieg is the guy who has, in my opinion, the most raw political talent of the bunch running. His messaging is on point. I've said this before. If he's not the nominee, he should be running the campaign uh, because the guy speaks uh, in a way that Americans can connect with. And his ideas are ideas that don't scare people, but they are progressive. To call him a non-progressive, which is I'm sure what's going to happen when they have the debate this week. I'm sure that Elizabeth Warren, and maybe not Elizabeth Warren, but but somebody on that stage will say he's not a progressive. Uh, I'm sorry, Obamacare was a very progressive thing. And it turns out it's a very popular thing. And it's something that we should be improving on. And there are more than one ways to be progressive in this country. And I, for one, want to get to a point where we propose things we can actually get done. Now, I get it. You can make big proposals like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, Bernie, Sa- Bernie Williams. Bernie Sanders, I'm in my office. I see a Yankee poster. Bernie Williams, great Yankee. Sorry, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders proposals, I get it. 
Let's aim big and have them bring us back to the middle because for too long in this country, and, and we've had this conversation, the middle has been defined by Republicans and the middle has been moving to the right. So I get the strategy of starting far left. And Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have been around long enough to know that they are going to have to compromise when they become president to get more people covered by health insurance. I get they know that. And I get that they're starting on the left, the far left. The problem is, is that if you start too far on the left, the people might not even give you a chance. So maybe you've got to think about your messaging Medicare for all who want it. Man, that's good. When I heard him say that a year ago on a CNN town hall, it was the first time I'd ever seen him. And quite frankly, I've said this to you before on this podcast, I was only watching it because I was waiting for my DVR to DVR like the first 20 minutes of Walking Dead because I can't stand the commercials on The Walking Dead. They're just commercials every two minutes and I've got to fast forward through them. But I also like to watch The Walking Dead on the night it comes on because everybody screws you on it. Uh, on social media. So uh, <laughs> I watched the first 20 minutes. I actually watched the first half hour because I was compelled uh, by, you know, I was like, who is this guy? Uh, and um, I have a good friend who went to college with him who, you know, had nothing but good things to say about him. And I, I tuned in. And that messaging, the way he presents it, is palatable to the people in this country who are afraid of major change. And I think most of the time in this country, we are afraid of big change. Although maybe, maybe not. I mean, they did elect Donald Trump, right? They did elect Donald Trump. And what could be a bigger change than that clown? I, I mean, it is a huge change that people voted for. But for some reason, Democrats don't get that, that latitude. They don't get that, that latitude to create big change unless there's a complete disaster going on, uh, like the Great Depression. But I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested to see how uh, the debates go. I'm interested to see who attacks him, um, how they attack him. Um, I think he's a good candidate. I mean, I'm older than him, and that disturbs me, and I don't think there's been a Gen X president. I guess, I guess Obama was a Gen X president. I guess. It'd be, it'd be hard to go from boomers to millennials. But that's my, that might be what we do. And I guess Gen X, I guess we've all, we'll always have Nirvana. <laughs> you know, we'll always have Pearl Jam. We'll always have Soundgarden. We'll always have the 90s. Guys, it's uh, men and women out there. We, we may not ever have a president, but we will always have grunge. All right. <laughs> I think you've all heard enough from me tonight. Uh, I want to remind you, as always, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything and pay attention, America, and get everybody else to pay attention. Seek the truth. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look hard enough for it. And I will be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening, America, to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.